Welcome to History City, the story of the second most important place in England. Possibly. I'm Guy Morgan, and we're travelling from the end of the last Ice Age to the present day. First, let the spirit of York fill us in on what's happened so far. As the Roman legions depart from the largest, most significant city in northern Britain, they leave an impressive fortress with stone walls and watchtowers with a bridge to a busy civilian settlement south of the river. But Ibarakam has been in decline for at least a generation. Buildings are being converted and repurposed. The luxuries of Imperial Rome aren't easy to keep. Even if you have the money, it's hard to maintain a bathhouse if you can't find a good plumber. Things are changing, and here our picture starts to get rather fuzzy. For a couple of hundred years, we can only see dimly, as if through a glass darkly. This period is called Sub-Roman, or Anglian, but it remains a mystery. And with all such puzzles, we need detectives to put the pieces together. Our crime scene investigators are the archaeologists and the historians are collecting witness statements. How does the evidence stack up? My name is Alex Harvey. I'm a former Masters Medieval Archaeology student at University of York. I work for York Museums Trust and the Swedish National Heritage Board. I've specialised in the early medieval period and I really like the niche periods after the Romans leave before the Vikings, the sort of underseen areas of British history. Well, Alex, we're currently sitting in York Library you look out the window mm-hmm. and there is a piece of Roman wall there. Indeed. <laughs> so, obviously, 2,000 years after that, you can still see it. So it must have been still there when the Romans left. Definitely, yeah. When we talk about the fall of Rome, it's all very dramatic. We use words like fall and collapse and it gives the impression that a wave of shadowy barbarians came in and tore down buildings. When in actuality... Probably the correct way to describe this period would be the decline of the Roman Empire from a political and economic standpoint, especially in Britain or Britannia. The legionaries withdrew and with them, you can imagine like the equivalent to modern councils withdrew. And the immediate effect on the Romano-British population, so the people living in York, in London, in the cities, wouldn't have been too noticeable there's less soldiers on the street or no soldiers whatsoever, but life goes on as normal. And then the trade starts to slow down as the um, Roman Empire continues to decline further east. And then as generations move on and generation after generation, the infrastructure that the Roman legionaries had left behind starts to crumble. So in York, we've got ex-Roman soldiers who have settled, who've got land. Yep. And they're not as we've discussed before, Romans, they come from all over the place, but they also appear to come from northwest Europe. Mm. Can you just fill me in on who those people were? Because they were already here, weren't they? Yeah, so that is a really interesting question. Um, Pop culture and sort of mainstream history will place the timeline as the Romans leave and then the Anglo-Saxons come in. That's almost always how we've seen it in popular history is that the Anglo-Saxons as one culture unit come from northwest Europe and supplant themselves in England. Um, in actuality, as you said, there was a Germanic presence in England already. 
Some of these people are being hired from Jutland, which is central Denmark, Frisia, which is the modern Netherlands, and they're being hired by the Romans as mercenaries to fill in the gaps left behind by their own lack of troops in the late Roman period in England. And once the legions withdraw, you've got a leftover handful of, as you mentioned, Roman troops with land in Britain, but also these Germanic troops that have been left in Britain as officers. And soon they start to no longer hear orders because, of course, the empire is declining elsewhere. So they are left in England, almost like generals, but kings in their own right. And we see this up and down Hadrian's Wall, just to move away from York specifically. Uh, when the legions were in full force, Hadrian's Wall is a long military line made up of military outposts. Each one is like an important link in a chain. But once the empire starts to decline and the trade to England starts to break down and the infrastructure starts to crumble, these fortresses along the walls become small, tiny polities in their own right. Some of these kingdoms include uh, Reged, which is somewhat coterminous with Dumfries and Galloway and Cumbria in, the, in modern England. So you've got a, a landscape of these former soldiers that are hired from all over the empire and the fringes of the, the former empire who end up in England and start to carve out new kingdoms for themselves. And this is the Angles, these are the Jutes, the Saxons, the Frisians, but also the Frankish from um, modern France and Germany. It was never so much the Anglo-Saxons came over. That identity is formed within England from lots of different cultural groups interacting. And of course, the original Britons mm -hmm. are still here. On a linguistic point, what, what did people speak? So you'd have a mixture of languages. Latin would be quite common in the sort of aristocracy, especially learned individuals. They're writing in Latin. We've got very few written pieces in what you'd call Old Welsh or Britonic. That's the native language of England. And I say England just to stop confusing myself by saying Britannia and then England and then Angleland. It's very confusing all the different names for England at this time period. Um, and that is because of the multitude of languages. You've got Old Welsh, which is spoken by the native inhabitants. You've got Latin, which is probably shared within a, like a bilingual upper class, if you will that has uh, retained some autonomy after the Roman Empire started to decline. And then with the Germanic migrants, you're getting what we call nowadays Old English, which is in actuality probably a collection of language groups like Old Frisian, um, sort of like Proto-Old Norse, uh, Germanic proper and Old English. And those Germanic language groups are all quite similar, so they share a lot of vowels, consonants, and so the placement of words. There's very little crossover between Old Welsh and Old English because they're two very different language groups. Old Welsh is what you'd call a Celtic language group, similar to Gaelic or modern Irish, whereas uh, the Germanic languages are, of course, from a completely different area of the world. Right, so I have a theory, and it's not necessarily all mine, but the way Germanic languages are structured is slightly different from the way that what became Old English, really, isn't it? Is that because the British people and the Germanic-speaking peoples needed a way of talking to each other and kind of created this pidgin language? Mm. Well, whenen, whenever there's uh, interactions between different groups of language speakers, you get loan words uh, thrown between the two. 
Um, if we move forward in time briefly to the Viking Age, there's a lot of loanwords between Old English and Old Norse because these languages are quite similar. As for loanwords between Old Welsh and Old English, it's in the sense that they may not have been mutually linguistically intelligible to one another, but they would have words for one another that the others would adopt. For instance, uh, the modern country of Wales is backtraced to the Old English term Waylas, which means foreigner. And the um, Old Welsh just took that upon themselves, sort of claimed that identity. And there are a bunch of other Old Welsh words for areas of Eastern England, which the Saxons and Angles started to claim as they migrated through. Um, unfortunately, many of them are extremely difficult to pronounce, and I don't want to risk butchering them. But because the languages are so different from one another, um, we think, and the archaeology points to, there was at least economic interactions between the two peoples, uh, between the Old Britonic and the Old English. Um, so there must have been some kind of crossover with the languages, like they may have learned one another's languages just out of necessity. And in urban environments like York, there is some evidence for a post-Romano-British population in one area of the city, and then on the other bank of the Ouse, there is a Germanic population. So there must have been some kind of language crossover. Um, how that preserves nowadays is not so clear. Part of that is because of the later onslaught of Old Norse place names that have completely dominated the north of England. So we can really easily identify where a Saxon town was and where a likely Scandinavian town was, tracing that even further back to when the Saxons first came to England and where they settled and where the um, Welsh or Britonic remained is a lot more difficult. But traditionally the view is that the Britons were pushed into three areas of England. There's the Old North, which is Edinburgh and Scotland. There's Wales and then there's Cornwall. Uh, this view is quite outdated now. Uh, how we understand it is that the Britons assimilated into the not invading but oncoming English culture. Um, we're not quite sure how long this process took, probably a few generations. But what it looks like is the Britonic language sort of gets outcompeted, if you like, by the incoming English language in most of England, apart from certain areas like Wales and Cornwall. There's a lot of people moving around and there's a lot of trade, a lot of contact from all over the British Isles. What hard evidence, hard archaeology have we got for what York was like? So for York, the seminal work on this period uh, is the book Anglian York. Uh, by Elsa Mainman, which covers the awkward middle brother between Roman York, which is of course very famous and world known, and then Viking York, aka Jorvik, which is internationally renowned. I'm Elsa Mainman, formerly of York Archaeological Trust, now working as a freelance archaeologist. You're Dr. Elsa Mainman. I am. And you've written the book on Anglian York. The most recent manifestation, yes, trying to pull together a lot of former colleagues' works and bring it up to date to really put a benchmark down as to what we do know about the period archaeologically at the moment. It's not a historian's book, it's an archaeologist's book looking at the physical evidence that there is for that period. And what physical evidence is there for what Eber Arkham was like just after the legionaries left? Well, I think just after, if we're talking about the 5th and the 6th centuries, there's very little 
real evidence. Um, the, the, there is little evidence of settlement in the city during that time, but we, we, we see massive depopulation is the understood position. What's left of Roman York would have been the big public buildings. There would have been buildings in stone as well as buildings in timber but they would have been neglected and gradually over two centuries would have started to fall apart. There were probably pockets of people living amongst them. And we do have evidence of that uh, from, not particularly from the fifth and the sixth centuries, but from a little bit later, we do have evidence of people living amongst and modifying some of these Roman buildings. Very, very depopulated city. So large areas, there would be nobody living. We have black soil, developing um, those suggestions that there were sort of like almost allotment style gardens um, being developed in the town. So small scale agriculture, keeping of a few animals. Basically, you've got layers of compost. Yes, essentially, yes. And windblown refuse. Refuse was not being collected and deposited by the end of the Roman period. We can see that sort of breakdown of civic order. So there was already a build-up of this so-called dark earth, black soil, towards the end of the Roman period, which continued through the Anglo-Saxon period. Um, and so the speculation is that some of it is wind blow, some of it is the result of agriculture, some of it is the result of decaying timber buildings. And so we have, you know, up to a metre in some places, half a metre to a metre of black soil over much of the city, which must suggest big depopulation. Equally, you know, it was a defended area, so it could well have been a place of refuge uh, at times of stress so that people might well have come for that reason. There are big battles up and down northern England in this time period, arguably too many to count. Um, Oldborough, for one, was the site of a small Britonic invasion into uh, what nowadays we call Yorkshire, but back then was a kingdom called Deira. Uh, around York, Oldborough was invaded, we think Oldborough anyway, by a um, Welshman called Cadwallon of Gwyneth. And he may have based his troops around Oldborough to sort of harry into the north. Oldborough is not that far away from York, is it? No, it was the town of Isaurium Brigantium, if I remember correctly. So it was a uh, Roman uh, administrative centre, about eight miles north, I think, of Iberacum, which is, of course, the military stronghold and the capital of Britannia Secunda. But these farmers who were coming from North Germany weren't used to stone buildings, they weren't used to urban life, they weren't used to living in constrained circumstances, so it wouldn't have had a huge amount of attraction for them. They wanted the, the fields, the, the easily tillable fields that there were out in East Yorkshire, um, where they could farm, they've got access to water, as I say, apart from perhaps in times of need, the refuge that York offered, wasn't an attractive option. So where would they be living for most of the time around York? The actual settlement evidence that belongs to the 5th and 6th centuries is on the fringes of the city. So in Heslington there's been excavations up near where the university library was built, uh, where the extension of the library was built. Um, which show that there were farmers, Anglo-Saxon farmers, living and working up there, and the ceramics and other small finds that uh, fit with that. We also have cemetery evidence, funereal evidence, around the city, um, 
often, interesting enough, amongst the Roman burials. There were uh, Anglo-Saxon cremation urns, possibly one or two inhumations, um, on roads leading out of York. So along the Tadcaster Road, uh, there were burials found there, very close to where the Romans were burying their dead. Similarly, out towards Heweth, there were um, Anglo-Saxon cremation urns found. <clears throat> These cemeteries, unfortunately, were discovered during the 19th century. And although the recording wasn't bad, you know, obviously with modern techniques, we would have done it very differently. So we don't really know the extent of these cemeteries and how they might have integrated with the Roman cemeteries. But it does indicate that there were people living on the fringes of the decaying Roman city, very close to it, just outside the walls, really. Um, but very little evidence of them living in the city. The period is bedeviled by the fact that dating evidence is very difficult to come by. We know that Ro late Roman pottery and late Roman coins continued in circulation for a period, but an unknown period. Uh, so <clears throat> where we find them, we can't really use them to help us date things. The ceramics, other than sort of funereal urns, are very few and far between. All over Europe, it's, there's a lot of migration at this time, isn't mm -hmm. there? So, there's people swirling around this part of the world. Yeah. There's quite an old, well-established Roman city. Did anybody write anything about it at the time? So our sources for the time, um, this is historically why we've always called the early medieval or migration period as the Dark Ages, is because the written sources are really unreliable. We've got Bede, who's writing in the 700s, so a couple of hundred years after this time period. We perhaps can't trust him too much, but he's definitely one of the more reliable narrators of this time period. The other two are Gildas and Nennius. These are like the big three Dark Age, if you like, um, sources. But they're describing legendary poems to describe the type of people who are around in this time period. So the characters are like Yorian of Reged. He's a semi-legendary figure who is a Briton and he has a last-ditch fight against the Saxons only to be nobly defeated um, by his own men. There's Arthur, of course, who's mentioned offhand by Nennius as just this mythical hero that no one can match. Um, there's um, Gwalog, I think is the name, who is a king of a British kingdom called Elmit, which is roughly where Leeds and West Yorkshire is today. So our sources describe an environment of Britons nobly fighting an oncoming wave of a different culture. And this is largely where the assumption that the Saxons were invading as one big military force comes from. In actuality, the archaeology points to a migration of elite Saxons and Anglians, such as the Sutton Hoo burial. That's, what, early 600s? Yeah. Yeah. So the legions leave 410 and it's not unreasonable to think that if you had a farm, then you might want somebody to help guard it. <laughs> yeah. And if they turn out to be German-speaking, um, are they called federati? Yeah, federati, yeah, the foreign troops. Yeah. yeah. You hire your bouncers. <laughs> After a while, maybe you marry your daughter off to one of the bouncers. Yep. And, you know, gradually other farms merge, everyone sort of either has a punch-up or rubs along together. You get these statelets formed. Now, what was the one that you said was around York? 
So there are a bunch of these statelets or sub-polities, sub-kingdoms, petty kingdoms. Um, some of them are carved out of former Roman provinces. So the one based around York um, was carved out of the former Roman province of Britannia Secunda, and it goes by the name of, at least initially, uh, Dewa, and that means land of the oak trees. Uh, later, when the Angles start to migrate into England, that word gets anglicised into Deira, which is the southern half of Northumbria, which is a name most listeners will be familiar with. That's one of the big Anglo-Saxon kingdoms. And it's called Northumbria because it's north of the Humber. Correct, yeah. But Northumbria is actually a um, compound kingdom of two previous smaller kingdoms. One of them is Deira, which is north of the Humber, south of the River Tees. And the other is Bernicia, which is north of the River Tees, but south of the Tweed. The one near Edinburgh. Ah, yeah. Forget but, my joke. Well, there's, there's the fourth, isn't there? Yeah, That's correct, right. yeah. Um, but Bernicia, like Deira, these are Britain kingdoms that the troops left behind uh, when the Roman legionaries left have carved out themselves in, in a manner not dissimilar to what you described, where you'll have one farm that's perhaps bigger than all the neighbouring farms, so suddenly they become the king. And they're just like, well, of course I'm the king, you know, I'm the biggest landowner around, even if it's a very small kingdom. Uh, Elmit, which is preserved nowadays in place names like Sherburn in Elmit or Barwick in Elmit, uh, that's an area somewhere around the uh, East Pennines and Leeds. A small kingdom, but definitely Britonic, and we know this because the place names have survived. So whereas the rest of Yorkshire and all the surroundings of Elmit became Anglicised and Anglo-Saxons and Frisians and Jutes started to migrate, Elmit seems to have retained a cultural identity of being sort of properly Britonic. Um, so much so that everyone outside of Elmit is referring to the places within Elmit as like, that's Sherburn in Elmit. And that is almost how these place names have been preserved. So it's a patchwork of tiny kingdoms up and down England. Some of them will be Germanic kingdoms. Others, quite often, quite a lot of them, will be a mix of Britonic and Germanic. So you've got basically a lot of people either launching takeovers of some sort, either yes. by alliance, marriage or punch-up. Mm -hmm. And when you mention these deals between kingdoms, how some of them would have been done through punch-ups to, to maintain power, uh, definitely. But also the archaeology points to some peaceful dealings as well. If I may describe the Escheric ring, which is a wonderful item from the post-Roman period. It's a beautiful gold ring with a sapphire inset in the middle. And when it was found, it was believed to be from the 12th or 13th century because it's so uh, fantastic, looks so fresh, looks quite advanced, technologically speaking. But it's actually from the post-Roman period, and it is a gift, we think, from Francia, which is France, to uh, people in Kent, and then gifted again, perhaps in a marriage alliance, to the people of Yorkshire. And that's, again, how these different polities and sub-kingdoms are allying with one another to strengthen themselves either in unity or against a common enemy, which could be the Britons or another Germanic kingdom. Uh, it's very difficult to say, and that again goes back to the confusing sources. You've used the phrase Anglo-Saxon. There's a lot of confusion around what Anglo-Saxon 
means? Because the, the actual phrase isn't used until a couple of hundred years later. No, that's right. In, in York, the correct term is Anglian, uh, because the people who mainly settled in northeastern England came from the northern parts of Germany. Anglo-Saxon is the term that is generally understood by people as the peoples who came between the Romans and the Vikings. So sometimes we need to use the term Anglo-Saxon to make people aware of the actual period because they get confused by the use of the word Anglian and wonder who these Angles were. But of course, they were the people who generally settled in these northeastern parts. So they're the people who settled in East Anglia um, as well, down that area. And... Are they from North Germany and what's now Denmark? Yes, North Germany, Southern Denmark, from those regions. Their main settlements are out in East Yorkshire, where they were settling along the rivers and on good, easily workable farmland. So um, that's where the first settlements would have been. Really, what I'm talking about in this period, this post-Roman period, is a tale of two cities, if you like. Uh, Eberarchum's there, and as the Roman legionaries withdraw, Life may carry on as normal for a bit. The upper class, the upper class Romano-Brits may be trying to cling on to some of that autonomy they had in an international world. But as these trade routes temporarily cease, they start to lack that power. Uh, and then the infrastructure starts to crumble. As I mentioned at the start, the walls start to wither and break ever so slightly. We see some temporary repair work with timber structures being built inside Roman ruins. Then the sewers clog, I think we have to see a Romano-British population in the city throughout the Roman period. And as Germanic settlers came into eastern Yorkshire, then we can imagine that there would be some mingling of these peoples. But I think certainly in the city, we can't identify any evidence of that intermingling, except depending upon how you interpret the use of the same areas for burial by Germanic peoples or by Anglian peoples who are going to the same areas where the Romans buried their people. That doesn't necessarily mean that they were there existing at the same time, burying their dead at the same time. More perhaps it means that those were places that were recognised as appropriate for burial. So that's the only sort of evidence that we have to go on for, the, for that fifth century. So we have a Romano-British population in the city, and on the fringes we have farmers who are using cultural artefacts which we associate with Germanic peoples. That's as much as we can say at the moment. It's, it's another step to say that they were not intermingling or that they were. That's the evidence that we have. So there's two cities. You've got the ruins of Eberarchum, which we think may have been referred to as Caer Ibrauk by the uh, Britons in this period. And then on the southwest bank of the River Ouse is Aeophawick, and that name comes from Aeopha, which is in relation to Boars, and Wick, which is a Germanic term for a trading settlement. When you say Boars, you mean wild pigs? Yeah, wild pigs, yeah, which were known to roam around Yorkshire in this time period. And obviously they have a significance for Richard III. And yeah, the well it actually comes from the Anglians, if you like, the Anglo-Saxons. Uh, the association of York with Boars comes from their name of Eofferwick. Beforehand, Ebor and Ibrauk was in relation to yew trees, we think. 
Um, and that extends to the wider kingdom of uh, Dewa, which the Britons refer to as the land of the oak trees, which is the greater kingdom that Ibarakam is placed within. So uh, perhaps there, what just comes to my mind is a different way of looking at the world. The Britons and their naming conventions is very sort of almost sacred related, sacred places, groves, trees, whereas the Germanic presence is animals. Perhaps that might be some conjecture, but regardless this period, you've got Aofawik on one side of the ooze and then the ruins of Ibarakum at the other. And it's not until the Anglian wave of migration really starts to solidify and the Britain population perhaps merges that we get the unification of these two different towns on either side of the ooze. Of course, the river was very different during that period. It was, it was tidal. It was still tidal right up until the 18th century. So you could be directly in contact with the North Sea on two tides coming up through the Humber estuary. It was therefore changeable through the day. It was almost certainly shallower and wider. We know that there's been a lot of buildings which have encroached onto the river. And so it, being subject to tides, it would be a muddy slope down to the river. And there was a bridge across it, wasn't there? The Roman bridge was certainly there. The Roman bridge would have probably been in existence, how usable, how much repair it required, but it was probably in existence until the ninth century. People have argued that that was the case. Whether that's the, we, we simply don't know. Um, but because the river was tidal, of course, there'd be times at low tide when it could be crossed just with a, a rowing boat very easily, or perhaps even forded on particularly low tides. But the bridge would have been there throughout most of the Anglo-Saxon period. When the Romans were here, there were Roman roads, but where did most of the goods travel? Was it by boat or by road? Well, the Roman roads would have continued to be the main thoroughfares, but I think we have to see a very much more isolated type of economy with villagers looking after their own interests and not a great deal of trade going on, certainly not in the 5th and 6th centuries. We've no real evidence of that, certainly not in the city. Um, but the Roman roads and the Roman streets were perpetuated through the Anglo-Saxon and Anglo-Scandinavian periods because they still influenced the, the medieval town. There have been changes where the walls were breached, then new streets came in, but the, the, the layout of the Roman town can still be traced in many of York's streets today. Because anyone coming <clears throat> to York today would say, oh, it's, it's quite flat. Mm. Um, you know, all you've got to do is dig down through the various layers and in between the Viking bit and the Roman bit, there must be the Anglian bit. Well, it sounds like there's a layer of compost for a start, but what are the kind of changes that between then and now that we see? Well, I think it does certainly give the appearance of being flat, um, but if you strip away the debris of almost 2,000 years of human occupation, then you would see a, an undulating landscape that the town would sit on. The, the moraine is the where the ice finally started to retreat. So it was by uh, definition an undulating, rolling, uneven surface. And we see that across the city. And of course, there were two rivers penetrating the city. So again, they would have been cutting their way through the landscape. There's a project on at the moment trying to put together a deposit model to understand what the natural appearance of York 
pre-Roman would have looked like. But we are so aware as archaeologists that we can dig in one part of the town and find Viking Age evidence literally centimetres below the surface. We can dig in another part of town and the same Viking Age archaeology is 30 feet or 10 metres below the surface. So there's a, a huge variation. So understanding the natural topography of the town is really quite important, not just for uh, archaeologists, but for planners and for all of us to understand how the drainage and the, the town has developed. And of course, there must be bits of the town that have been built on now that you can't just walk into somebody's front room and dig straight <coughs> down or under the guild hall necessarily. Or Absolutely, yes. Yes, there's very little open space that's still open for archaeology to really have a large expanse to look at. So consequently, we end up looking down little postage stamps of land and trying to build a bigger picture from that. So when there is an area, a large area open, it's a, an opportunity that really mustn't be missed. <clears throat> when the Redferns Glass Factory came down uh, on Fishergate, uh, it was thought that the uh, Priory of St Andrews, the Gilbertine Priory, was would be found. And sure enough, it was. But immediately below that were Anglo-Saxon levels, just again, centimetres below the surface there. And that was a big surprise. So we we do have surprises that come up and, and hit us when we look in different parts of the city. If somebody from 450 then was magically transported to York of 600, what differences would they notice? I think not a lot is one way of looking at it, apart from that there had been a bigger build-up of debris and that the Roman buildings had collapsed more, the roofs would have caved in, some of the tracks would have become overgrown. Um, there were probably still pockets of people living around, but probably fewer. So not a huge difference. I mean, when people look at the Anglian or Anglo-Saxon period, they think it's a brief episode between the Romans and the Vikings. It's actually 400 years, which is a big expanse of time. And for the first 200 of that, not a lot went on in the city. So it's quite difficult to really get your head around the fact that something that could have been a thriving Roman military and civilian settlement just fell slowly into decay over a 200 year period. And it was in nobody's interest to come and knock the big buildings down. They would stay up until they were either fell down or until somebody wanted to loot them for the building zone, which didn't happen until much later. One of the things that you notice about York now, and from what I can tell reading the history, was that it's always been full of churches mm -hmm. from round about 600. When did the first church building start? The first one we know is the big one. It was the one, the wooden church that was built specifically for the baptism of the King of Northumbria, Edwin, in 627. There would have been Christianity in the city in the Roman period. We know that for a fact because we know that there was a, a bishop. But Roman Christianity vanished along with the Roman way of life. So there would have not been any Christianity or churches for this period of abandonment. And then we have the introduction of Christianity through Pope Gregory's mission into Kent, which finds its way with his missionary Paulinus finds its way through the royal networks 
to York. So the King Edwin decides it's in his interest to become a Christian, he marries a Kentish Christian princess in 627 in a wooden church built specifically for that purpose, for his baptism. This is the first written reference to York after the Romans leave, and it's in reference to a Northumbrian king, Edwin, who establishes the first York Minster. It would have been built of wood as part of a Christian conversion. And after that, York starts to take somewhat of a small centre stage in Dayran slash Northumbrian politics as a religious centre. Uh, prior to this, we think it probably had as much importance as uh, Petuaria, which is nearby Hull in the East Riding, as just like another trade centre along the river. It's not until later, um, thanks to the Anglian kings, where it gains its sort of um, status as being a centre of learning and uh, religious uh, operation. So we're talking about a king he didn't necessarily come out of nowhere, did he? So what do we know about his ancestors? So Edwin is one of a dynasty you'd call the Efings or the, the Yilfings, perhaps, depending on how you pronounce it. Again, sorry if I'm butchering any of these pronunciations. Um, but Northumbria at the time, this is, of course, from roughly York to about Edinburgh, a very vast kingdom. It's made up of two, maybe more, sub-kingdoms, and there are warring dynasties that, fight between themselves. One of them is the Iding dynasty, and their progenitor is some semi-legendary figure called Ida the Flamebearer. And the other dynasty, again, has another semi-legendary figure called Ayla. And this, again, goes back to how difficult it is to talk about this time period, because until you have historical mentions of these figures, like King Edwin, we can't really say that they existed fully. A lot of them may just be caricatures of multiple groups of people. We, we can be sure that King Edwin existed, just like we can be sure that his successor, the more famous King Oswald, existed. But prior to them, there's uh, kings like King Ethelfrith. He probably existed. There's historical records to him waging war outside Chester to kill a bunch of uh, Celtic monks. But the further back you go, the more murky the waters become. So if he's off in Chester killing monks, my guess is that he's not a Christian. Well, that's a very interesting point, actually, which nicely segues onto another uh, interesting point about the post-Roman period. Um, on the topic of Ethelfrith, this is a historical king who reigned from the late 500s to the early 600s. He reigned over Northumbria. He was indeed the first king to unite the two kingdoms of Deira around York and Bernicia around Bamba Castle area. He unites them into a Northumbria United Kingdom. And he's a somewhat powerful king. He definitely has the means to invade near Chester to kill some Celtic monks. And why is he killing these monks? It's not because he's pagan. Uh, we think Ethelfrith was a Christian, but he was a Roman Christian to some degree. Probably not a devout Christian and probably retaining some pagan beliefs, either from um, the Germanic lands or native Britain paganism. But there's two forms of Christianity almost battling like a spiritual war in England at the time. It's not just a period of culture clashes, but religious clashes as well. After the Roman legions withdrew, and they of course had established Christianity as the religion in the West, thanks to Constantine, uh, Christianity was on the back foot for a while, we think, especially in England. 
without uh, infrastructure there to enforce Christianity, there's evidence for populations within England, they start reverting back to the pre-Christian beliefs. So there's two attempts to re-Christianize England. One of them is your archetypical Roman Christianity, and that comes in from Kent through missions sent by the Roman Pope in the late 500s. And they start converting kingdom after kingdom, working their way up to the north, where eventually some of the Northumbrian kings decide to convert to Roman Christianity. The other form of Christianity is coming from Ireland, and it's left behind by monks that had stranded themselves there as hermits during the Roman period. And their form of Christianity is slightly different. It's a mixture of insular Irish beliefs. So they shaved their head differently. They didn't have the central tonsure. They just shaved the front of their head and had a big mullet, if you like. Just these small differences, which to me and you nowadays probably seem a bit petty, but they were huge divides in England at the time. And this Celtic Christianity, this is influencing certain kings of Northumbria. And maybe their son then chooses Roman Christianity, but their son chooses Celtic Christianity, back and forth. And that's another form of conflict. So that's why we think Ethelfrith, as one example, was out killing Celtic monks near Chester to enforce Roman Christianity, or perhaps just to make a gesture to a king that was more powerful to him that was a Roman Christian, to say, like, I'm on your side, give me money. Yes, it's all about power in the end, isn't it? It is. But it's not just a difference in hairstyle, isn't it? There's an argument about the calendar. Yes. And The day of Easter, specifically. Yes. So when is Easter? Well, we know it's coming up. But that there's a huge summit slash peace conference. Yes. About 40 miles north of York. Yes. In, that's about the middle of the 600s, isn't it? I believe that is either with King Edwin or King Oswald. My money's on King Oswald. He's a really influential Christian king or warlord, if you like. That is arguably the first king in the post-Roman period whose state outlives him. A lot of rulers in the post-Roman period maintained their power by just constantly touring their kingdom or their borders, killing people, gaining wealth, and then redistributing it um, throughout their men or their household guard. Whereas Oswald establishes, a, or at least attempts to establish, a form of state that would outlast him. And he does this through giving land to the church so they can reinforce his will and the will of God. And one of the means is unifying the divisions between the two branches of Christianity. So what the church is doing is maintaining the corporate memory of the kingdom. Yeah. It's not just if one guy dies. So you've got a Christian king, you've got churches, York is back on the up. Not so fast. Don't forget, there are always some heavily armed men just over the horizon. King Edwin and King Oswald are both killed by the same person. We think uh, Pender of Mercia, who's one of the last great pagan warlords of the time. Hmm, it was a hazardous job being a king. My thanks to Alex Harvey from the Yorkshire Museum and Dr Elsa Mainman, author of Anglian York, which is published by Blackthorn Press. The Spirit of York is embodied by Alison Willis. This episode was recorded and produced by me, Guy Morgan, of Soundstage North. For links to further information, please look at our show notes. And if you enjoyed the programme, why not write a review on your podcast provider's site? It helps spread the word. 
Thanks for listening to History City. We hope you can join us next time.